invite you to remain standing out of praise for God's Word, which reveals to us God's Son in whom we have life. And you can grab your copy of Scripture and turn to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that's in front of you and turn to page 860 is where we will be together this morning. It's our normal practice here at a Redeemer to just walk simply through books of the Bible together, part by part, passage by passage. And so since the end of November, we've been journeying through Luke's Gospel and we finally made it to the beginning of chapter 5 this morning as we want to look at the first 11 verses together. So let me read our text for our study and then pray that God would bless it and then we will begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us once again through his word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray once again. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you would do a mighty work among us. That your word would be open to us by the power of the Spirit. And that very Spirit would move some of us in here from death to life. From the chains of Satan to the bonds of Jesus Christ. That you would fill us with the truth of who Jesus is. And what he calls us to be as his disciples. So let us hear with fresh urgency and fresh eagerness for me to preach with clarity and boldness as your word says I must as a dying man unto dying people. And let us hear as though this could be the last sermon we ever hear. And Father, we pray that you be glorified in this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you know our sixth child, Boston Stone, just about two months old, is named after the great Scottish theologian Thomas Boston. Thomas Boston's most influential work, at least, was titled Human Nature in its Fourfold State. It was the most popular, best-selling book in all of the 18th century in Scotland, going through something like 100 different editions. 
so influential was it? But my favorite book that Thomas Boston ever wrote was actually the first one he wrote. He wrote it when he was 22 years old and was a licensed gospel minister in the Presbyterian Church there in Scotland. And later on in life, just before he died, before the age of 60, he was editing his journals and put some sort of an editorial note in his journals for his children about this first work he ever written because it hadn't been published yet. And he said, speaking about this time when he wrote the work at the age of 22, he said, reading in secret, my heart was touched with Matthew 4.19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. My soul cried out for the accomplishing of that to me. And I was very desirous to know how I might follow Christ so as to become a fisher of men and for my own instruction in that point. I addressed myself to the consideration of it in that manner. And that little scribble gives an idea of the then temper of my spirit. That little scribble was eventually published after its death and has never gone out of print. It's a little scribble on pastoral ministry that's titled The Art of Man Fishing. And man fishing is all about our text this morning. It's what the sermon is focused on. For you'll see once again as Jesus says in verse 10. That his disciples, those that follow after him, will catch men alive. That is the sum substance of their business and commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you've been with us in recent weeks, you've seen how Jesus, at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, he began his public ministry. It was a ministry of preaching. It was a ministry of teaching. And we've seen throughout chapter 4 that Jesus' initial ministry was largely an individual one. Yes, he was like the rabbis at that time in the Jewish world, coming into synagogues, teaching and astonishing people with his authority. But unlike the rabbis at the time, he didn't have any disciples that were following him where he went. And all of that is going to change now in our text as Jesus is going to take a few fishermen and make them into man fishers. And so kids, I want you to pay attention to this text this morning because it has a lot to tell us of what it means to be a true Christian. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? This text is going to help us understand what that is. And students, I hope you pay attention too this morning because what we find in our text is something of a clarion call that reminds you that to follow Jesus is going to cost you something. That discipleship in Christ is always costly. And even then for us as a church, not only, like every passage of Luke, do we get to see something true about Jesus and what he requires of us, we have the very first hints at what are our great king's marching orders for his people as he calls us to this very ministry together. And so if you wanted to simply sum up the passage before us with one simple sentence, you could say Jesus calls his people to follow him in seeking to save the lost. Jesus calls his people to follow him in seeking to save the lost. We know from Luke's gospel that is the center point of Jesus' ministry that he came to seek and save the lost and we're going to get to see this morning that he invites us to join in that very work. And even the passage as a whole functions as something like a, a very simple and I hope powerful pattern 
of true discipleship that has three different parts. First, we're going to see truly following after Jesus means receiving Christ's grace. Then secondly, it means recognizing your unworthiness. And then thirdly, it means responding with service or responding in service. So what does it mean to faithfully follow Jesus as his student, as his disciple? First, it means receiving his grace. Look at verse 1 once again as we set the stage for this great scene. Luke tells us that there was an occasion while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, and he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which the Jews would always, or at least normally, call the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, we've seen in chapter 4, was something like a popular celebrity teacher at this time in his ministry. He's going all throughout Judea, preaching and teaching in the synagogues, astonishing no small number of people who are marveling at his teaching. So wherever he goes, he seems to have a crowd with him. So eager is this crowd on this one occasion that they are. You can just picture it, can't you? Jesus is teaching them. But with each passing paragraph, he's slowly backing up because the crowd is pressing in more and more before he backs up and he's basically reached the water in the lake and he knows that this isn't a safe nor satisfactory atmosphere in which he can teach the people. And so he looks around and he sees Simon's fishing boat and he gets in the boat and pushes off a little bit from the land and he creates this natural amphitheater. People would have been able to spread out across the shore, sit down, be a little bit more comfortable. The water itself, presumably if the wind is even at his back, functions as an amplification system. So he sits down and turns Simon's boat, who we know is later called Peter, and even in this text is called Simon Peter. Peter's boat becomes something of a seaside portable pulpit for Jesus' teaching ministry. And the point, though, in our text is not what Jesus taught there by the lake or on the lake. The point for Luke is what happened after that. Because notice verse 4. And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. The first church I ever served in had this dear saint that loved to make sarcastic comments about the preaching some of you may consider yourself uniquely gifted in that way. And his favorite comment at the door, I wasn't preaching at this time, so I just heard him say it to the pastor, was, Preacher, you today went from preaching into meddling. And I'm trying to figure out if I want to thank you for it. And Peter may have even felt something of the same thing here. Jesus, hasn't he gone from preaching to meddling? Here is something of an authoritative rabbi, expert and teacher in God's law, now telling a professional fishermen, hey, it's time to go catch some fish. And you're not going to understand even Peter's sense in the moment when, unless you grasp at least the idea at this time, the best time to fish was at night. The best place to fish was in the shallows. Here's Jesus now saying the best time to fish is at daybreak. The best place to fish is out in the deep. That's the right place. That's the right time. Have you ever noticed how Jesus tends to be so disrupting to our ordinary life? And even ordinary callings. It's as though he comes to Peter. He comes to Simon at this moment and says, Hey, if you are truly going to follow me, you have to follow me in those areas where you think you know better. 
I'm going to assert my lordship precisely at that point where you think you are the expert. Does he not often do that to us as well? A confrontation with Christ's grace is a confrontation at the point where we feel most secure, where we feel most strong in our own ability and wisdom. And not only does Christ's grace confront Simon in this moment at that point of his professionalism, but also, do you see, it's in a moment of his exhaustion. We know he's been fishing all night. Jesus is now telling him to go back out into the deeps, to throw down his nets, which would have been much more manual labor. Of course, working throughout the day to not just bring in, if he catches any fish, the fish itself, but cleaning those very nets. I wonder what you tend to do when the word of Christ confronts you at a moment of weakness and weariness. You know, kids, you need to know that Satan always stands at the ready with an excuse for why you don't need to obey Jesus. And how many of you know that so often weariness prevents us from following faithfully after the Lord? Well, notice what Peter says. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Three words you ought to circle. At your word. Something of the sum substance of what it means to follow Christ faithfully. Some of you may even sit in here this morning. And maybe you sit in here with a season of suffering confronting you, a time of affliction facing you, and may you respond at your word, I will wait. Or maybe you're facing a time in which you feel as though the Lord is calling you to sacrifice something for the cause of Christ, for the gospel of God's kingdom. And may your response be at your word, I will trust you, even if it may not make sense. Or even for others of you in here this morning, maybe it's the Spirit pricking your conscience and moving within your soul to to put a particular secret sin to death or lay aside that cherished idol that you so often come to. So at your word, Lord, I repent and will follow you in obedience. At your word, Peter says, I will let down the nets. So off they go to let down the nets. And of course, what happens is something totally unexpected. Is it so often true that one simple act of obedience or we never can know how God intends to bless one simple act of obedience? Here is something of a miraculous catch of fish that at the very same time would have excited peculiar interest and excitement in these fishermen because they surely had never gotten this kind of a catch at fish ever, let alone at daybreak in the deeps. But suddenly, that great catch of fish becomes its greatest disaster because the boats are beginning to sink. It's a picture I want you to see of God's abundant sovereign grace. Because did the catch of fish have anything to do with Peter's ability or wisdom? It had everything to do with Christ's wisdom and his self-sufficiency. It's even a demonstration of Jesus' power, once again, over the seas, which is quite significant if you understand all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The first command that God gave to Adam was be fruitful and multiply. You know what the next phrase he said was? Have dominion over the fish. Here comes the second Adam, the last Adam demonstrating 
dominion over the fish, grace in abundance, mercy aplenty for those who don't deserve it. And such is the life we live in Jesus Christ, is it not? To come to Him begins with receiving His grace. But how ought we to respond to such an abundance of His kindness? Some of you may have watched the movie Gladiator before. It's been quite a while since I have seen it. But I have this one scene permanently etched upon my mind when Maximus, who's the hero, the protagonist, the gladiator of this movie, he's in the gladiator ring and he's just dispatched one of his opponents and it's like he sets his weapons down and he looks up into the crowds and he cries out, are you not entertained? Is this not what you came for? Which implies in his questions that he thinks their response of amused entertainment is quite wrong. If such a miraculous event happened to any American Christian today, I wonder what they would think about this abundance of grace that they would receive from Jesus Christ. I happen to think, maybe I'm wrong, but I happen to think that a casual, ordinary Christian would pat Jesus on the back, maybe make a sarcastic comment about, ah, is that really the best you could do? Lift up their phone, take a selfie with the Savior with the armada of fish in the background to post on social media, and such would be the response to receiving Christ's grace. But how does Simon respond? Do you see his response in verse 8? He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish. Simon knew that Jesus was the master, so he obeyed him. Simon now is getting more knowledge of understanding Jesus is also the Lord to whom he must bow down. And as the narrative of Luke's gospel continues, what we're going to see is something that, that Simon, and just like the other disciples, they're increasing in their awareness of who Jesus is and, and why he came. He's not at a full understanding of Jesus' identity at this time, but what you must see is that Simon has enough understanding of Jesus to be scared to death. He is a sinner in the presence of the Holy One of God. Because we're not told that Jesus, in the midst of this miraculous catch of fish, is preaching a hellfire and brimstone sermon, warning these three fishermen, and if Simon's brother Andrew is there, the four fishermen, that they are sinners in need of a Savior and coming judgment will fall upon them if they don't repent of their sin. It's a confrontation of grace. Grace so amazing, so astonishing, so majestic that Simon can't help but fall down and recognize that he is a sinner. You know, we make much, rightly so, in our tradition of the law's use to reveal our sin. Uh, the old divines would speak about preaching the terrors of the law that people might come to Christ. But do you not know that the grace of Christ is the most awakening sight in the world? to see the fullness of his mercy, kindness, and compassion, what ought sinners to do but fall down in fear? How great is this God? And even see from Simon's response that we so often, don't we make a big deal about specific sins? 
Maybe we don't make as much of a deal about sin that I am a sinner in the midst of a glorious God. Have you had this kind of an encounter with Jesus Christ? An encounter of his compassion that drives you to your knees? An awareness of his mercy that causes you to be quite scared. Receiving Christ's mercy ought always to lead us to recognize our unworthiness to receive it. For it wouldn't be mercy or grace otherwise. And even parents, don't we know that some of this is even the great labor and center of our instruction and discipline of our children to remind them. Sometimes it feels like hourly, if not even more frequently than that. You are a sinner. But don't stop there. And he is a greater savior. Recognize your unworthiness. Number three, following Christ means responding in service. Because Jesus is now not done giving grace to Simon because he first gives him a comfort. Look at verse 10. Do not be afraid. You who have fallen down at my very knees in fear for your life, don't be afraid. Now kids, I want you to think about something. What is the most common command in all of the Bible? It's this one. Do not be afraid or something like it. Have no fear. Don't be scared. Do not many of you know this morning the all-pervasive nature of fear? You come here this morning with fears, anxieties, doubts, and worries. Maybe it's fears over your children. Maybe it's fears about a relationship, a lack of a relationship, fears about God's provision, fears about God's security for your life. But our text is pointing to a more essential fear in the human condition. How many of you fear the fact that you are a sinner that stands before a holy God? Because you should. Fear that you are a sinner. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is you don't have to stay afraid. Because yes, the Bible says we're all born in sin. We're by nature children of wrath. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Thus, we come into the world as enemies of God. We deserve nothing more than his judgment, his punishment, his wrath and penalty falling upon us. And there's absolutely nothing we could do to remedy that. No amount of good we do, no amount of striving we pursue, no amount of wisdom that we have could ever make us right before God, and God in his kindness knows that. So he sent Jesus, his one and only son, to live the perfect life, being faithful everywhere where we have fallen short, thus coming to the cross at Calvary, and it's there that we look upon him in order to live and find his comfort. Because it's there that he's crucified, it's there that he's broken, it's there that he's bloodied and bruised in our place. And so when he rises again three days later, he rises again in power and victory and now speaks to us through his word and spirit. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, turn from your sin and trust in me, and have no fear to stand before the Father at the last day, because I am with you. I have forgiven you of your sin. Yes, we must be afraid about our sin.
the comfort of the gospel is we don't have to stay afraid. We have confidence now, do we not, to come before the Father. So he gets a comfort, and he gets, secondly, a commission. Do you see how verse 10 ends? From now on, you will be catching men. Matthew's gospel is a little bit more famous in its rendition of this scene. Matthew 4.19 says, Now on I will make you fishers of men. And even the Greek here in Luke chapter 5 is more accurately translated something like, From now on I will make you catch men alive. And the alive is actually very important. Uh, When you know how in redemptive history there has been in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, something of a focus on man fishing. You can go read it later on today in Jeremiah chapter 16. And what you would find is God was going to commission people to catch men. The whole metaphor is the same. But it was going to be a catching of people unto judgment. Go catch them that I might punish them. Go catch them that I might bestow my vengeance upon them. But now Jesus is saying, catch them alive. It's a rescue operation is what he's saying. Go rescue them from death and danger. Rescue them from that path of destruction on which they are on and put them on the road that leads to eternal life through that narrow gate. Go catch men alive. And what we always must reckon with when we come to texts like this is does this commission apply to us today? Or was it solely for its original context and those apostles? We have not the time to tease it out in full length happy to speak about it later on, but this is a commission for you and I today. Are you fishing for souls? Where might you even cast your net this week? Christ continues to save people through the work of his church, a church that's continually being formed into his likeness by the Spirit, so to have more of the mind of Christ, more of the heart of Christ, more of the passion of Christ as to what? Be eager to fish for men, women, boys and girls, to seek and save the lost in the Spirit's power. Because I want you to notice something that's happening also in verse 10. Students, look at it once again. Do you see we have two things going on? First, we got a command. Do not be afraid. Then we have a promise. You will be catching men. Or as Matthew says, I will make you. I will make you fishers of men. If you were to ask an ordinary Christian what tends to be that great inhibitor of evangelism, what kind of prohibits them from courageously and consistently speaking of Jesus Christ, likely most people will respond with something about fear. I pray that this promise would sweeten and strengthen you in your fear. I will make you fishers of men. You will be catching Men, Because see the sovereignty of Christ even in this moment. He had power, dominion over the fish. If he wanted to, he could have stuck his finger in the water and the fish would just come jumping out of the water into the boats. But he said, cast your nets. Peter, go cast down those nets. Does he not work the same way in our own preaching of the gospel? Go preach. Go share. Go speak the good news. And leave the actual harvesting to me. Leave the actual filling of those nets to me. And do you not take comfort from that? 
Does, does not Christ find peculiar honor in the salvation of souls? Why wouldn't he want to fill your nets with fish? So you respond in service. You get a command, you get a promise. They got a comfort and a commission. So as we begin to close, I want to think about just two simple things from verse 11 that are true about real disciples. Genuine discipleship, number one, will cost you something. Do you see that in verse 11? And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. My wife tends to be pretty creative with her parenting of our children. We have six little ones at home, age seven and down. So there's lots of toy grabbing that goes on at our home throughout the week. And especially when one child in particular is grabbing toys or things and keeping them all to herself or himself, Emily will point out the irrationality of their sin by telling them to stop being a dragon. Stop hoarding stuff unto yourself and letting no one else touch it. And what we find in the Gospels is that the kingdom of God suffers no dragon-like disciples. Christ comes and claims all of you, your mind, your heart, your soul, your life, your family. He needs no part of you untouched. And so for those of us that have come to Christ in faith, we are right to expect it will cost us something. What has it cost you to follow Jesus Christ? Of course, the original disciples cost them their friends, their family, their vocations. Most immediately, it cost them a miraculous and, of course, extremely profitable amount of fish to leave that aside. Would not the crowds that maybe have still been standing there at the lakeside thought such a walking away from the fish to be quite foolish? But following Christ, remember this, is always going to be foolish in the eyes of the world. So it may cost you your reputation. In our context, it may cost you some friends. It may cost you some family members. It may cost you an identity. It may cost you a job. But following Christ will cost you something. And if you look back on your life and say, I don't think it's cost me anything. Don't despair this morning. Because it will at some point. You cannot follow Christ for the entirety of your life without losing something. What good does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul, Jesus said. Genuine discipleship will cost you something. Lastly, genuine discipleship focuses on Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Do you see the end of verse 11? They left everything and followed him. He is the center of what it means to be a Christian. Thus, he is the center of what it means to be a disciple. He is the focus and concentration of our life. In Christ. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. And so I was wondering this week, thinking about this very passage, reflecting on my own weaknesses and struggles and imperfections in evangelism, and I thought to myself, maybe I speak of Christ so inconsistently because I walk with Christ so infrequently. Is it not true that a constant walking with Jesus Christ leads to an increasingly diligent witnessing for Jesus Christ? For you're going with him everywhere. You can't help but introduce people to him. You can't help but see something of Christ in your life and say, what's going on? 
Why aren't you doing that? Or why are you doing that? Well, let me share you the good news of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the center, and thus must be at the center of our entire life together. As we leave this place, we want to walk each and every Lord's day, renewed after His image, reminded of His mercy in Christ, that we might diligently walk in step with the Spirit this week. And so, speak of Jesus Christ. Some of you know the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German Christian who died at the hands of Nazi Germany at the end of World War II, and he's a follower of Christ who knew the costly nature of Christ's grace. He wrote about it in a classic book called The Cost of Discipleship, in which he said this, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, but costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. For when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And Luke 5 just adds to that. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die and then sends him to go catch men alive. May we do so faithfully following after Jesus Christ, seeking to save those who are lost with its help and power. Let us pray. Father, we recognize that we are sinners that have been redeemed by the blood of your Son that we often live lives that are fueled by fear more than confidence, that we are so often scared to speak of Christ. So help us this day to be encouraged as we see afresh your power and your abundant grace towards us in Jesus Christ. May it move us, may it shake us, may it mold us, may it shape us into the image of your Son, the one who came to save sinners such as us. And help us, Lord, we pray. We want to be diligent. We want to grow. We want to be faithful and fervent and seeking to speak the good news of Christ to those who are dying. So help us to be faithful fishers of men. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.